Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome to Podcart's Life is Like a Box of Records podcast. My name is Helena Rafai. Occasionally, we bring in special guests to talk about the songs that have soundtracked their lives so far. For rights reasons, music may be shorter than the original song. Podcart's Life is Like a Box of Records is recorded, produced and edited by me, Helena Rafai. Original music is by Susan Bear, a.k.a. Good Dog. This week's guest is Hannah Curry. Hannah is a music promoter, DJ, documentary filmmaker and mental health advocate. She's been an integral part of the Scottish music scene with her co-run collective Milk, which has put on some of Glasgow's best music nights. She's an award-winning documentary filmmaker, having released two extremely important and thought-provoking shorts. It's her work with MHF Live and Mental Health Foundation that's seen her pull from all aspects of her work in music and film, and her passion for helping those struggling is clear. It seems there's nothing that Hannah can't turn her hand to, but it's her tour de force attitude that places her as one of Scotland's most notable creative talents. So welcome to Podcart. My special guest today is Hannah Curry. Uh, for people that don't know you, Hannah, it explain who you are and what it is that you do. Um, I'm a filmmaker and I am also a club promoter so I do both of those things kind of in tandem. Um, basically a jack of all trades really. You've had, uh, it's been quite an interesting a few years that you've had that we'll come on to a bit later um, but You've picked songs, as usual, with this Life is Like a Box of Records that have soundtracked your life so far. Um, I want to kick off with the first one, which has been quite topical of late, thanks to a band called Puddle of Mud. And it's um, Nirvana's About a Girl. So why this song? Okay, well, before before uh, Puddle of Mud butchered this song... Um... This is one of my favourite Nirvana songs. Nirvana very much reminds me of my mum. It's her favourite band. Um, and she used to blast it in the car when she was taking us to school. Um, I remember getting into trouble at school because I was singing the lyrics to Rape Me once, not knowing what it meant. And um, my mum had played that, so she got called in. Um, but about a girl, I kind of rediscovered my love for it after I watched the Montage of Heck documentary about Kurt Cobain, uh, amazing doc, um, and realised from that documentary that it's about 
basically Kurt taking advantage of his ex-girlfriend, so the girl that kind of pre-existed Courtney Love and had to kind of watch that whole thing play out on the on a national international stage. Um, and she was kind of the original girlfriend who just loved him so much, but he was this musician who wanted to kind of go do his thing. about him kind of taking advantage of her having her there as a sounding board and a pal but not wanting to commit to her um which I think is quite relatable but also just so kind of um just such a perfect rendition of what happens when somebody kind of has a creative um I don't know calling that they have to they have to fulfill um and when other people around them maybe don't get that I still think it's obviously tragic what happened to Kurt Cobain that fame kind of found him before uh, he was ready for it and he was sort of far too a uh, fragile a person to really deal with a lot of the stuff that came with it um but yeah I mean first and foremost it was it was a song my mum played to us um in the car to school and I always kind of knew that my parents were cool from their music tastes because I would always kind of bring in these songs for friends to listen to and, and people would be really into it um, it was a toss up between Nirvana and The Eels which was another one that they kind of played really often and that continued all the way through, I mean it's it's still happening, my mum and dad um, are kind of the source of a lot of my music tastes nowadays um, they're just, they just mine music and find the gold and then give it to me so I don't have to do all the research which is nice. What's your first musical memory? Uh, Run Dusty Run by the Long Riders. I remember my dad playing me that and me absolutely loving it and dancing around to it. I don't know what age I was but um, the song was released in 1984 well before I was born so um, I guess I was very young maybe four or five dancing around to that and then I, I distinctly remember my dad's 40th birthday um so he's 60 now um almost 61 so 20 years ago like I would have been 10 and I remember I requesting this song and him putting on and loving the fact that all his friends really liked the song and I liked it and I was like oh like I know this song and it's so impressive that I know this song and they all love it too kind of thing like just like that having that feeling of like mutually loving music um, and kind of dancing together and being a part of it, um, yeah, that that would be my earliest. I know it's a bit of a obscure reference. I also remember my dad teaching me the drums on upturned buckets and basins to Massive Attack's Teardrop, um, which you know anyone who knows that song knows the drum beat, and it is pretty pretty straightforward. <laughs> Literally, boom boom, boom boom, um, but I just like oh my god I spent days hours like learning this beat on uh, on a wee makeshift drum kit um, and I did go on to learn the drums but I, I sadly gave it up I'd love to pick it up again. When did you first realise that you wanted to have kind of some working association with music and the creative industries? Um, much like anything that I kind of try and dig my 
claws into or whatever you <laughs> my little troll hands um I see something I just greatly enjoy something or greatly admire something and then think like I want to do that um and I'm actually a very self-conscious uh, person I struggle with um self-belief so usually it's like I want to do that and oh, I can't do it so for all of these years of going to gigs and uh, I, I kind of went into music journalism because I just so wanted to go to more gigs and obviously that was a way of getting into them for free I wanted to be in about it I wanted to meet the people who made music um but always kind of, it took me a long time, always it took me a lot of kind of like, oh, I'd love to do that before I would kind of be like, oh, well, I, I can, I can find a way in. So I can't play a musical instrument. I can't sing to save myself. I don't have the confidence to be on stage, but I could, you know, write so I can write about bands. And then from that, um, obviously starting up Milk with Aileen, um, we were both doing music journalism at the time, both absolutely loving gigs. Um, and it was, yeah, it was that kind of thing of like, oh, how do we put on a gig? Um, and we were lucky to be given an opportunity at the time by somebody that we'd kind of crossed paths with via our music journalism to um, to start up our own night. And we just obviously took that and ran with it. But um, it's always been, I really want to do that, but I don't know how. And then kind of working out a way in through the back door um, to be more involved in something than maybe than maybe I should be, but because you know I I don't have any musical talent, it's a, that's a source of great regret. But I wanted to be involved in that world, so it was kind of like how can I adapt what I do have to be a part of that. Tell us about your next pick, Benny King, uh, Stand by Me, and and at what point that came into your life. And it's it's such a popular song for a lot of people. So why did it shine? Yeah, for me, this is um, quite a sad one, but it's a song that was played at my grandfather's funeral. Um, it was the first time that I'd ever lost somebody. Um, and it hit me really hard when he died. Um, I, yeah, just that, the first sort of touch of grief that you, you experience is always going to be the worst, I guess. I hope it's the worst. I just couldn't comprehend at the time that that would happen to me again, that I would feel that way again because it was so painful. Um, and I didn't even see my grandpa, you know, maybe once once every fortnight. It wasn't like maybe once every month. I, I don't really remember. Um, I just remember the overwhelming feeling of guilt that I hadn't seen him enough when I, when I lost him and that that was going to be it, that that person wasn't going to be tangibly there anymore. And the land is dark And the moon is the only light we'll see No, I won't be afraid Oh, I won't be afraid Just as long as you stand Stand by me So dark Yeah, the humanist funeral so you choose all of the songs and the humanist um sort of tells stories about the person and it was really really lovely it was a really warm experience um and I always remember like really distinct I remember so much distinctly from that time um it's kind of imprinted on my memory but I remember the humanist um whatever you call them I don't know head humanist or whatever they are <laughs> coming over to our house and um or my grand's house and 
writing everything down and we said that we wanted Benny King um, and she wrote Benny King, like B-E-N-N-Y, um, when obviously it's Ben E, E standing for Arrow King, um, and me like looking at it and being like, oh, like she doesn't know who Benny King is. <laughs> um, and uh, But anyway, like it was so... It was it's it was a lovely it's a lovely song. Um, every time it comes on now, obviously as a huge song, so it comes on in places like cinemas or um, restaurants or shops, and it just like every time it comes on, it totally gets me. It's just like strikes right deep into my core, um, and I think of him. Um, it's beautiful. I love it. You and your brother um, are are kind of quite close. I think it's fair to say. Was there were there any musicians that he introduced you to, or vice versa, when you were growing up? Yeah, my brother very much introduced me to the world of hip hop. Um, he still absolutely lives and breathes hip hop. Um, so when we came to work on my first film together which was about a rapper from Glasgow um Tim just like took that and ran with it and um and if only we could have because of rights obviously you can't use um we couldn't kind of use if we wanted to take it around film festivals we couldn't use a lot of big hip-hop names but um they would have had some soundtrack if we'd if we'd had the money to do that um but obviously as it stood we we used a lot of uh, the rappers uh, the rapper Lumo who the film's about we used a lot of his music which was amazing um and uh, and music from various other people in the kind of classical hip-hop scene but yeah Tim I mean introduced me to Biggie um he was right into Eminem obviously Dr Dre um he in later life Kendrick Lamar Lamar um and Aesop Rock like just people uh there are lots of obscure names as well. Mac Miller back in the day, um, who's now not so obscure, obviously. But um, yeah, I mean, very much introduced me to all of that stuff. I can't say I introduced him to anything that he would want to listen to. Although, actually, now that we are older, and I lived with my brother for a really substantial amount of time uh, when I moved back from London last year, um we we kind of have started to fuse in our music taste uh, taste so we listen to a lot of like we love watching color show on youtube which is just all these kind of amazing artists a lot of soul and um a lot of hip-hop in there too r&b um we like like just chilling out and watching that we love the blaze um so yeah i think we've kind of got to a place where we have unified in our tastes but Tim absolutely can't stand all of my kind of throwback stuff that basically everything I DJ at my nights is just like <laughs> like wild horses wouldn't drag him along to my nights. <laughs> Madonna, I remember when the Ray of Light, uh, this song came out, but also the album and it was a bit of a game changer for me, certainly. I thought that it was the best thing. I th- I still think it might be the best album that she's ever produced. Yeah. Uh, why Ray of Light and um, h- how much have you kind of stuck with her since this album? I couldn't agree more that it's a game changer of a song. It's just it fills me with joy when it comes on. Um, truthfully, I haven't stuck with Madonna massively, like in terms of followed all of her new stuff. Although it always kind of gets round to me eventually. I'm not like one of these people that you know would pay whatever through the nose for a ticket to go and see her. Um, I just don't really believe in. <laughs> uh, 
yeah, I mean, I just don't have the money, basically. Um, but I, I, um, I love like I just she's obviously like a total legend, and she's done so much amazing stuff that it's hard to comprehend. And I think um, she's one of those few living artists that can truly be appreciated in real time. Um, you know, so many people like you kind of rediscover their back catalogue after they're gone, and then there's people like Madonna. Um, you know, Michael Jackson was one of them bef- before it was kind of a a bit of a um, yeah, bit of a grey area that. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, Ray of Light. This song, um, it's from it's the title track from the album, same album that Frozen came off of, and I just remember this being a period like a moment in time in my life where music was just like buzzing alive probably just the first time that I'd really come to music and um watched Top of the Pops and watched all the music videos and just been like completely like eyes open to what was out there I mean, it was 19, I had to check this, but it was 1998 that it was released and that for me has very much defined like a time in my life that is so nostalgic and warm and it's almost like it's before, you know, you go to high school and become a teenager and everything goes to shit. It's like just pure unadulterated joy of like dancing around your living room to music. Um, And this song was put on at a party that I was at like maybe three years ago and it just it was like I was just the right level of steaming to be like oh my god I forgot about this song and it just like reawakened it for me and now I play it all the time at our 90s night so yeah that kind of love for the 90s early 2000s never left me um and I'd say a song like Ray of Light is just so smack bang in the middle of that era. I want to talk about um, a bit about Aileen Lynn, who is your friend and also um, you set up Milk with. And uh, it's how I got to know both of you and we've done some fantastic things together, but you've also become a bit of a kind of uh, like, I don't know, I think a, a collective to aim towards. You're so... Uh, driven and passionate and you're so on the money when it comes to the promotion of your events and so on um when you met, first met Aileen what was that did you immediately feel that you'd met almost like a kindred spirit how are things now and and planning around what you want to do uh yeah Aileen is a very special person and I knew that from the moment that I set eyes on her which sounds kind of creepy but um but we I met Aileen through working in Radio Bar and Ashton Lane um and I saw her and I was just like who is that she's just radiated like happiness and a glow she's such a positive person I mean we can we're complete yin and yang because I'm like the total like 
pessimist to the point that it makes me super super organized um and that's kind of a skill but um but Aileen is the she's the complete optimist and she's really taught me a lot about just chilling out and enjoying things and stopping uh overthinking everything um and uh yeah like she she just she's just good inside and out she's golden um so when we first met it was like I knew I wanted to be her pal. Uh, we started hanging out after, you know, if you work in bars, you usually kind of have drinks after uh, parties at people's houses and stuff. Uh, and then, yeah, just became really close. I think the time we became, we sort of realised that we had a lot in common was I had two tickets to Stag and Dagger um, through a journalism thing. I can't remember who I was writing for. Um and whoever I was going with, I think it was my brother. I said that I was take my brother, and then he, oh yeah, it was my brother because then he was sick. Uh, he was so hungover, he was sick, and then he like hoovered up his own sick, which is disgusting. But that's stuck in my mind. And I remember phoning Alien and being like, "Oh, Tim can't go. This has happened." And I was laughing about it. And she on the spot quit her job at Pizza Hut to come to Stag and Dagger with me because she wanted to go so much. Um. And we ended up just getting like absolutely blasted and I, I, not writing a thing for the whatever uh, paper I was meant to be writing for, which obviously is not something I'd advocate, but it was a very like great day. Um, and in terms of now, I mean, yeah, it's it's tricky because I suppose we sort of entered in, Milk has been running for almost a decade um, and I definitely, I don't know, like, I just can't really imagine life without it in some shape or size but I think that you know we are we started this in our early 20s and now we're in our early 30s and um obviously like life changes and tastes change and and a you know the the amount of time that we had to invest in what was originally a fortnightly night with three bands and DJs like I can't believe I ever had time to book you know three bands and DJs for every two weeks and still manage to kind of get the crowds in um so now obviously we it's a kind of a lighter approach we're we're not putting on live music um we're we're kind of putting on themed nights DJ nights and things that are a lot more nostalgic and kind of looking back to that youth but I mean the most amazing thing is that we still have this kind of like army of like milk people that that came at the beginning that we still see at our nights now that um that are just like very much into the same vibe as us and and as long as that's there we'll do it um we, we've we've got a a night a pop punk karaoke night at block that's on hold right now and as soon as we're allowed to uh, return to normal we will but obviously um you know it, it's kind of the last thing on people's well it's not I mean we, everyone wants to go out and have fun but um but at the end of the day like yeah we have to prioritize people being safe so we're just going to wait and see and then we'll adapt as we always do to to whatever things look like after all of this is over and speaking of of pop punk well they're kind of post hardcore as well it's funeral for a friend and that's your your next pick how significant were this band for you when you were growing up oh like so huge funeral for a friend it's another it's kind of like I moved from the 90s and being defined by pop to like the the sort of mid 2000s been been defined by um not mid 2000s early 2000s being defined by pop punk um and emo and everything that came along with it I just entered high school and and 
in total cliche fashion, like became a complete emo, moody kind of I don't need friends kind of uh, person, and this was the music that spoke to me. And yeah, I remember blasting this music kind of throughout high school and, and having so many good times as well, like Cat House Unders. Um, and we were, we were we were kind of, yeah, trying to sneak into clubs kind of early on as well. So um, all the gigs, like the gigs at Barrowlands with Cider and Blackcurrant, the many lost memories, the photographs on like disposable cameras that you would go and get developed and it would just be like total chaos. Um and just thinking you were really cool and looking back and being like, oh my God, what was I wearing? Um, but like, yeah, I just, I love it. I still love it. I, it it's for me, again, it's a moment in time that's, um, you know, massively sort of shaped my life and given me many, many good times. So I unashamedly love that song. Are there any other uh, musical moments such as grunge or, or hip hop or dance or whatever that you maybe wish you'd have been part of within that like either decade or, or period of years that and you you're almost jealous that you missed them to be honest I guess like part of me is sort of sad that I wasn't into like techno and dance and stuff like that when it was kind of in its heyday like for instance everybody was going to the arches when I was kind of um in my late teens early 20s and I would go occasionally to nights but I at that stage was not indulging in the sort of things um, that make that kind of music really fun um so I feel like I did miss out on a sort of collective like awakening um with regards to certain kinds of music and I think that would have been an awesome thing to have been part of together um I get jealous of every, I get jealous of so many eras when I watch documentaries about them and stuff and then I'm like, oh, that must have been such an amazing thing to have been a part of. Like when, you know, the Beatles first like revolutionised live music and it was just like chaos and and everything that came after it. Like all of the stuff that my mum and dad went to see in uh, the 70s and the 80s. Um, my mum and dad were, were going to see The Undertones, The Clash, all those kind of bands and like that that by all accounts sounds like it was an amazing thing to be a part of and I think we kind of can't appreciate just how meaningful those tracks are to our parents um because like imagine that kind of that coming out and now you have so many replicas but at the time that was just like brand new and it would have been incredible to to have been a part of if music had kind of been sleepy and uh, samey for that long and then like bang like comes all that music um so yeah I get I definitely get get sort of um hazy eyed for um certain periods in time and think like that would have been amazing to have been a part of but I have no regrets that my sort of period was 90s early 2000s I think it's very much like a laughing stock to a lot of people and you know like my dad just like would 
is horrified by it because he's such a muso and brought me up with this amazing music conversation uh, education uh, and he's just like what the fuck Hannah but it's like it's it's something that I grew up through and it ha- it's just fun and uh, yeah like I don't I don't feel bad about that at all I think grime though is, is very very I would love to like f- know what it feels like to be in that grime scene because I mean and which is just not going to happen as a white woman but I think that the the camaraderie and the like just some of the sheer talent of of people in that scene and kind of the way that they all bounce off each other um would be pretty would be pretty awesome as well to, to actually be right in amongst before we come on to your film pick, um, I want to talk about your your film making, which has really kind of brought you into your own, but it's also uh, created some incredible talking points and, um, you know, I mean, I mean, award winning opportunities for you. So first of all, um, I want to talk about We Are All Here, which is about Lumo. And how you got approached to do that or decided to to make that uh, film, but also what you have kind of since learnt from it and and what it's led to. Yeah, um, I've always wanted to make documentaries. And like I was saying earlier with the music thing, it was always that thing of watching other people do it, admiring work and thinking, I could never do that, I wish I could. Um, and as I got older, kind of flipping that on its head and being like, well, you know, why why do I think I can't? Um, what do these people that make films have that I don't have? And a lot of the time it's, you know, they have an insight into the industry from an early age. They're lucky enough to know uh, filmmakers and kind of find a way through. Um, or they just have more general awareness or confidence of what what the possibilities are in their life but when I left school I just didn't even know that filmmaking was a job um and I I, I did history at uni it was like oh right choose a subject um that you're kind of interested in uh yeah and sat for four years doing an academic subject that really I had absolutely no intention or interest of of being a history teacher or an academic uh, so it's it's puzzling like why I wouldn't have gone to do film at uni I literally didn't know that it was an option um, which I think speaks a lot for uh, kind of our education system and the way that it's very much built towards um, academia um, and not so much towards practical um, jobs or creative jobs um, you know, I think that that I think in some high schools that's definitely changing, but certainly uh, it wasn't an option for me as far as I was concerned. So it took me the long road round. Um, my brother was always really interested in film and TV and loved movies, so he um, kind of went into that world before I did and was an editor. So that was kind of my window in, and then. Um, I was a journalist for a while and I did use a lot of those history skills, um, interviewing people and things like that, um, because I was an oral historian, so it's all about interviewing people about their lives. Um, So I used a lot of that in my journalism and then eventually made my way into TV via commercials, advertising, and then finally in my late 20s decided to give give documentary making a try and spent all of the money that I'd made in freelance commercials going to do a six-week course in New York 
which was like yeah admittedly half Rami in New York because I'm obsessed with the city and half um learning how to make films but the film making part of it was really intense it was long days it was every day including the weekend for six weeks and I made my first film about a drag queen um and from that I just got a total love for it got completely hooked um so a year later I decided to go and do a full year's master's in filmmaking um at Goldsmiths in London and it was there that I read about Lumo's story while I was kind of um first learning to make films properly I learned about Lumo's story and I reached out to his friends and asked if they would be up for me making that story because I had access to all the kit from being at uni and I had um for the first time kind of the confidence that I could take this story and make something good with it make something powerful that that could make a difference um and all of that kind of yeah it was sort of the perfect storm at the time in terms of filmmaking for me to be well positioned to make a film um and to give that the time and care that it needed um and yeah I'm really proud of what we made together I mean, speaking, moving on to to something also as as poignant, which um, was your film that joke isn't funny anymore about your uncle, um, which was produced, directed by yourself and produced by Beth Allen from Forest of Black. You've won it, you're a BAFTA winner now, which is, I think, for anyone that, that kind of knows how hard you work and the, the self-doubt that you have, then it was a real, um, it was incredibly emotional for a lot of people and um, when you were making what's the difference between making a film about someone that's a family member and and I mean how do you try and kind of separate yourself being a director as opposed to that person being your your relative um it's really difficult and a lot more difficult than I that I sort of expected I think coming off the back of the first film I always wanted to make this film about my aunt and uncle and I'd actually given it a go at uni um but maybe just didn't quite have the the knowledge yet to make something good from it so it'd been a kind of midterm project I tried to but from shooting for that midterm project I had loads and loads of footage with my aunt and uncle um and I used a lot of that in the new film so um, it was a really good thing to do. Um, I still struggle with that one because what I really didn't want it to be was about me and about the film. Because um, I think I've seen some filmmakers make films about their family um, and sensitive subjects within their family. And they're amazing, incredible films, but there's almost like a layer of disingenuity running through it where you can kind of see that the films come first if you know what I mean um and I was so hyper aware of not taking this real painful thing that's happening in my family's life um and making something out of it that didn't do do that justice um and I really wrangled with that in the edit like I I I really struggled and and I and by the end by the time I'd actually made it I wasn't completely convinced that I'd managed to do what I'd set out to do um but obviously the film's been received remarkably well and when I speak to people after screenings they seem to be getting the things from it that I hope they would and they absolutely you know the film is really about my aunt and about her um her 
sort of endurance and resilience with a very, very difficult situation because um, things aren't really necessarily going to change for my uncle because of his brain injury. Whereas my aunt's on a journey and and, and sort of finding her way through and um, being able to cope with that long term. So, uh, and they like the film. So that's that's all that really matters to me. But it was a tough process. I was very obsessed with the fact that was I doing them justice or not? And and that kind of led me to to get quite just yeah in a in a bad place with <laughs> with it. So that's something I think as a filmmaker, you kind of have to work on constantly. You have to realize that when you're going in and telling stories that are very personal to people, you have to constantly be considering um, the effect on those people, but also the effect on yourself um, and kind of taking stock and being able to take a step back and speak to other people about it. Um, that taught me a very important lesson that like, you know, you can't neglect um, your own mental health when you're making films about other people. So, so yeah, I, I'd like to think that I have the kind of mechanisms in place now to be able to handle that going forward. Staying on the subject of film, you've, your next pick is from Film Soundtrack, which we ask people to do. Um, and it's from Garden State Soundtrack, which is arguably one of the greatest film soundtracks out there. The band Coldplay, who unfortunately kind of get uh, quite a lot of stick every now and again. But um, this song, Don't Panic, why did you pick this um, in particular from this soundtrack? It was a toss-up between this and Shins. Um, Because the Shins are obviously featured quite heavily on that soundtrack and they're brilliant as well. Um, but I've chosen Coldplay because exactly for the reason that you that you mentioned, they've become this sort of behemoth now and it's kind of uh, not a band I would now associate myself with, not because I don't think that they're hugely talented, but I just, it's kind of gotten too, too much of a machine for me and, and I kind of tend to check out um, at that stage when things get like really, really overproduced and... Um, it just takes away, I suppose, what I love about music, which is, you know, people writing songs in their bedroom and then releasing them to the world and you can just feel everything that they've put into that song. Um, whereas, you know, once they've had that level, once they become people who who are kind of quite far removed from our lives in terms of the way that they live their lives, it's, I think it's very hard to get that relatability factor in there. Um, but this is like the first studio album from Coldplay. It was... Um, pretty stunning and you I mean you you, you can't deny um, his talent Home's places we've grown all of us are done Yeah, Garden State is one of my favourite films. Um, it's definitely not for everyone, but it's obviously written by Zach Braff. I think he wrote it, directed it. Um, features Natalie Portman, and I saw that as well when I was a teenager, and I was just completely like bowled over um, by the sort of indie film. It's just the perfect indie film. It's just it's funny. It's it's got love. It's got heartache. It's it's really, really beautifully done. Um, and this song, Don't Panic, is um, is kind of a standout track for me from it. 
I mean, I I love that song. It's it's such a it's such a nice song. One of the greatest bands of all time, Talking Heads, and it's great to see them on a playlist. Um, the uh, this must be the place, which is generally not a uh, a lot of people are a bit more stereotypical in their song choice. So why this song? This song just defines my life in London. Um, I lived there for a couple of years. I obviously went to study there. I moved into this house. Um, with four other people in southeast London and I just landed on my feet with it like I I didn't know any people in that area of London at all London's obviously massive so the people I did know were like two hours away um, and I found this house on spare room and moved in with four people that I'd never met before I, I, I'd met them on Skype um, to see the room so kind of a massive gamble which could have gone either way um, and I could have ended up you know really miserable during my time in London but as it happened I landed in this group of people that had about 40 friends who were all so sound. I mean, that lot were definitely a lot more into their their kind of uh, electronic and techno and all that kind of thing. But we went to like loads of gigs and festivals and clubs together um, and just had the best time. And I mean, London summers are long. The days are really long um, and hotter than they are in Scotland. Um, so you, we would just hang out all day and then kind of party all night. And this song would always get played at two, three, four in the morning. Um, it's a sort of shared love of this song with my housemate Max, who I was really close with. Um, and yeah, just it just makes me smile because it reminds me of that time, you know, those songs that when they come on, you just think, like, I know for the rest of my life, I will associate that song with that time. And that makes me really happy because it was a wonderful time. I really, I really do miss London and I miss them. Moving the focus to to kind of now and, and obviously we're within a, a pandemic we're in a lockdown and it's affected the creative industries in a way that I guess that um was was I suppose in ways unprecedented but still uh, you know just as as devastating um emotionally and economically how has it been for you and how have you had to kind of try and adapt and, and look to to surviving um it's really tough and I think it's getting tougher um the longer that it goes on and you kind of realise that your sort of earlier um, comforts to yourself of like, oh, but when it's, we'll, we'll do this and when it's over. And now you're kind of looking at the long haul potentially and thinking, I have no idea what the world's going to look like on the other side of this and where my place is on the other side of this. Um, but, you know, I did spend like a fair few days maybe even weeks um kind of mourning that and getting really down in the dumps about it and then I sort of picked myself up and thought well you know my job has been to to tell people stories like those stories still need to be told um probably now more than ever 
yeah, there might not be money for the creative industries or, or certainly the, the pockets of money that there are um, maybe aren't going to be prioritised for, you know, newbies like me. But um, where there's a will, there's a way. And I know enough amazing people who are invested in, um, you know, telling stories and in, in continuing to, to put the sort of important subjects like front and centre in, in people's line of vision um, so I feel that I am pretty confident that I have enough um, drive and enough people around me with that drive to to tell these stories one way or another um, and I kind of accepted like when I went from commercial production into documentary filmmaking um, it, it was a massive adjustment that I had to make to um, in terms of like what well money coming in and money not always coming in um so I've kind of been living like that for a wee while like sometimes okay with it sometimes not so much but it's it's something that I'm willing to like get to grips with basically is just doing living life at a a bit more of a um yeah living within my means really and and realizing that I am very very lucky to have um you know a roof over my head um supportive family emotional support when I need it um and that a lot of people don't have that so it's kind of um for me I just think my 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 priority as much as getting myself back on my feet will be to try and get other people back on theirs because because some people are going to be hit really really hard by this and and I, you know, obviously this is all connected with mental health and you and I um, have bonded and, and, and worked on things um, with mental health and, and um, we have stuff coming up as well. But you ha- have kind of gone on to lend your skills and experience and, and lived experience by working with um, Mental Health Foundation. How has that kind of been for you and how's it opened up your way of thinking surrounding the subject of mental health? Um, well, Mental Health Foundation are, are really important, I think, as a charity um, in terms of getting mental health on the agenda in government and um, really trying to fight the stigma that still exists and they're an amazing organisation to work for um, and to collaborate with. So I've volunteered for them um, when I was a teenager at their Scottish Mental Health Arts Festival which is still running to this day Um, and I got back and told them when I sent them the Lumo film and they selected it. They actually they selected it for an award at their film festival and then they got in touch with me and said, actually, what are you doing right now, Hannah? Because we've got um, a position um, to to sort of project manage a new fundraising initiative um, called MHF Live. So I did that with them for several, quite a long time. I can't even, was it almost a year? And, um, and now, yeah, I'm trying to collaborate with them going forward into this period to sort of bring my creative skills together with their knowledge and their networks and their reach um, to see if we can try and um, create something 
that basically helps us to process what's happening right now to all of us and to heal. So, um, and yeah, I really want you to be involved in that as well, Helena, as you know. So um, I'm really hoping that um, it's kind of what I was talking about before with regards to um, sort of adapting to the way things are now and reaching out to each other and realising that, like, you know, you have friends that have skills and as much as um, making money is really necessary, important for us to live, you know, in this new world that we're emerging into, having purpose is also really important. And when you, if you have, um, you know, friends and contacts that you know are really great at one thing or another and that they could potentially feed into to a project that is overall a positive, going to have a positive influence, then I think um gives people the opportunity to to be part of that because um yeah it's really really nice to be able to sort of put your heads together and do something positive just because it's positive um so yeah I think mental health foundation have informed my my way of thinking a lot in that I just so believe that now more than ever it's essential to have somebody standing up for mental health and shouting out about mental health um, because it just gets buried underneath everything else. The economy, um, the capitalism, constant striving to reach potential and then getting there absolutely broken and gasping um, and not being able to enjoy like the benefits of what you've worked so hard for. It, it, it just is a model that doesn't work for me um, and I know that because I got broken myself and I reached total burnout um, and I just have massively, you know, that lived experience for me has massively changed my um, my perspective because I, I can't, I couldn't go on the way that I was going, just constant, constant striving, constant kind of battling to work hard at all costs kind of thing. Like now I'm much better at knowing the importance of um slowing down a wee bit and taking a breather and respecting that other people need to do that too you know you can't expect other people to have things to you like right now even if you're ready for it to go right now it's kind of like other people have got their own shit going on so I'm a lot more mindful of that now um and I think everybody could could really massively benefit from being more mindful of that that you know just because things are going okay for you doesn't mean they're going okay for everyone. Um, and it's about trying to sort of adapt. And Mental Health Foundation really, right when I was organising a massive gig for them in London, I was struggling with my mental health. And the support that they gave me to sort of find my feet again really was what led to me being able to go on and do that gig for it to sell out the Amira in London and be a massive sort of like source of... Um, promotion for mental health foundation and source of income for them and um, that was purely because they adapted to to give me a bit of space um, so I think there's there's a lot to be said for you know the current model that most of us are working under being broken um, and having to look at other ways that we can because I don't want the world to just go back to just like strive 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 like let's you know it's just it's pointless like you need to enjoy life so Withered Hand, a uh, Scottish artist and, and such a talent and this song, um, I mean, this is your your one and only Scottish artist on this playlist. So why did you pick this song and this artist in particular? I just absolutely love Withered Hand. My dad introduced me to Withered Hand and 
was one of those, you know, like total wow moments. Like everyone talks about that time their dad puts on a record for them and you're just completely captivated by it. Um, and that weather time was that for me. Um, and yeah, he's Scottish, which is awesome. Um, I No Cigarettes is the last track on my film, That Joke Isn't Funny Anymore. And I had it in mind right from right from the beginning, really. Um, and I kind of used it as a placeholder in my edit as this last final track, thinking all the time, like, fuck, I'm going to have to find a track for this. Like, But nothing's as good as this track. And then Beth, um, you know, in Forest of Black, had done some some stuff with, with Withered Hand before. So we reached out to him and said, look, we don't have any money for this film, really. But, like, would you be up for letting us use... Um, this track and he said can I see the film and he watched it um, and got back and, and he loved the film and said that we could use the track I went lost Always the back end of this pants in my voice All we seem to do these days is wave our arms and yell other people are hell The most I song you're singing Everybody hurts When everybody lies Don't wanna remember Too many regrets And no cigarettes Cause I'm not a smoker but I said I was In the elevator Stuck between the floors It's getting to me Don't let them forsake you Rack them up and knock them down again You're changing direction I won't know where I was The back end of the That to me is is like as good as Madonna saying I can use her track at the end of the film. Honestly, it's and it's so perfect for 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 my film because it's about sort of frustrated love and um, relationships. And I just couldn't have picked a better song. Beth loves it too. It's one of her favorite tracks. So we were both like super super keen. And I mean the whole thing with my dad introducing me to uh, Withered Hand like quite often when pe- when I say to people oh, like, my dad introduced me to your stuff, or, like, um, even if it's, you know, it's famous people I've met or 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 not some, or local artists or whatever, people are like, oh, great, so I'm your dad's type of music. And it's like, no, like, being my dad's type of music is, like, a huge compliment because he's such a musical. He lives and breathes music. If you're in his radar, then, then you're doing pretty well. Um, so, yeah, it's just, I think it's beautiful. Awesome. Well, my goodness, we're already at the end. And um, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me. And um, for anyone that kind of wants to to follow what you're doing, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, I'm on 
Instagram and Twitter. I've familiarised myself with Twitter because I found it's actually a really good place to follow filmmakers and kind of get lots of chat about what's happening in the world of film. So I'm on Twitter as just Hannah Curry, my name, H-A-N-N-A-H-C-U-R-R-I-E. And I'm on Instagram as Hannah Milk, um, which is obviously my name, then the name of my company. And thank you so much. No, thank you. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.